The Israeli government, funded by the United States, is at this moment in the process of destroying Gaza, home to more than two million Palestinian people. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Miko Pellet. Miko is a human rights activist. He's the host of the Miko Pellet podcast and the author of The General's Son, A Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. He's also the author of Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. You can find his podcast books and much more at mikopellet.com. Miko, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Right now, Miko, as I said in the introduction, the Israeli government funded by the United States is in the process of destroying Gaza. Tens of thousands of residential homes have been damaged. Big parts of the infrastructure have been destroyed. A quarter million Palestinian people have fled their homes. The Israeli defense minister has said the Israeli government is fighting human animals and will treat the war as such at the time that he announced a complete blockade of food, water, and electricity. In other words, it is a policy designed to destroy Gaza and the people who live there. Joe Biden spoke about the war, the the latest version of the war the other day, and he said the cause of the war is Hamas and the Palestinian people, and he described them as, quote, sheer evil. So it's a war between good and evil. Miko, your comments. Well, thanks for having me on the on the program again. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a gangster who's been humiliated and is now taking vengeance by killing as many people as they can. I mean, there's clearly no military or strategic or any other objective to this, to the slaughter. It's a slaughter. It's a slaughter, again, a gangster who's been humiliated and is trying to make a point that they can still kill people. And it's what's really mind-blowing is that as these attacks, these massive assaults, you know, savagery taking place in Gaza, the Palestinian fighters are still going in and out, and they're still fighting going on in the settlements in, in the southern part of the country. I just heard a rumor, I don't know if it's, it's verified yet, that two fighters were just caught just in the outskirts of Jerusalem driving... So they're still going in and out. The fence is still broken. They're still getting reinforcements and uh, I'm assuming supplies from inside, from Gaza. So the problem hasn't been solved. If you're looking at it from the you know, standpoint of the Israeli government, the Israeli government didn't only fail its people with this massive intelligence failure and massive military failure. They were not able to protect their, you know, their country and their citizens from, you know, from this. But now they are focusing on revenge, on vengeance, on just spilling as much Palestinian blood as possible. And they're not stopping. I mean, Israelis are in their homes, afraid to leave. Shops are empty. You know, the shelves are empty. 
There's no schools, no public transportation. People are afraid to get on the road. So the effects of this attack have not been curbed. You know, it's still going on, but they're out there focusing on vengeance. It's really an absurd, absurd, absurd reality that's taking place right now. And of course, Joe Biden comes out with this ridiculous, ridiculous statement talking about the evil Hamas and not a word, not a hint about the savagery that's been taking place now, but also going back 75 years against Palestinians. In other words, the framing of this is Palestinians are evil, Hamas is evil, and therefore we have a problem and Israel has to do what it has to do to defend itself. Words fail you when you see the disparity between the truth and the reality and the statements coming out of American politicians. Miko, there was a, a large number of demonstrations in the United States on Sunday. There was a big one at Times Square. Thousands of people came out. The Answer Coalition, which I'm a part of, helped initiate the demonstration. There were many Palestinian organizations, other progressive groups. Thousands of people came out. And a huge kind of hysteria has developed as a consequence of the demonstration that was organized in, at Times Square on Sunday, because some of the people at the demonstration were celebrating the resistance of the Palestinian people. It was greeted with this all-out hysteria as if the demonstration, too, was just an example of sheer evil, in the words of Joe Biden. There was this giant hysteria because of some of the words that were not genocidal words, they were not fascistic words, they were not anti-Semitic words. But I want to play a clip and this is of the people who were coming to the pro-Israeli demonstration, which is actually people advocating the absolute genocide of the Palestinian people. These are Americans, American, presumably American, young American Jewish people. And again, this is all over the internet. It's on the media, but the mainstream media and all of these politicians, they don't have a word about it. It's just sort of like, oh, of course, natural. Let's hear this clip. Fuck Palestine! Palestine to my dick! What do you think the response should be from Netanyahu and the military to Gaza? Kill all Palestinians! All of them! Not one left from the river to the sea, Palestine will be deceased! What do you, what do you think the response should be what to, do you to Gaza? We gotta wipe them off the fucking that's map! It, I'm talking about that. every fucking... Flatten them like a parking lot! Yeah, wait, wait. Flatten them out! Once they're there's not, 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 there. nothing else you can do. They they proved to they proved to us that they, there's nothing else you can do. We tried and we tried everything. It doesn't work. We have to wipe them flat off the fucking map, like like a fucking parking lot. Yeah, I'm not stopping till all Arabs are wiped out. I think I think now it's the time that we need to erase Gaza. There is people inside, our people inside, that kidnap, and now we need to kill all of them and free Israel. All all of their beliefs is killing Jewish and killing and murder our people. Flatten it, flatten Gaza. That will be the last war in Gaza. This will be? Yes, it should be. Okay, so Miko, flatten Gaza, kill them, kill all the Arabs. These are genocidal, pro-genocidal comments. Again, no big deal. It's kind of like if Israeli supporters talk about killing the Arab and Palestinian people who are basically had all of their land stolen, living in this open-air prison in Gaza, not a peep out of the so-called politicians, not a peep out of the politicians who are so alarmed that people have gone into the streets in support of Palestine. 
Look, I don't have to remind you or probably any of the listeners that this country gives access of $4 billion a year to a country where government ministers for decades have been saying the same things. Government ministers, people in power have been saying this, Israeli members of cabinet, Israeli prime ministers, Israeli generals. This has been the rhetoric against Palestinians and particularly against Gaza, people in Gaza, you know, going back decades. I mean, you and I, you and I have been hearing this for a very long time. So these punks are standing there and they're repeating what they've heard. They're repeating what they've seen. They're repeating what their parents are probably saying and their friends are saying. And, you know, Zionism is a racist, genocidal ideology. That's the source of this. You know, these kids are not bad apples. The government ministers that have been saying this for decades, you know, the movie about Golda Meir just came out, hailing her as some kind of a great hero. She was an ra ignorant, racist war criminal. And what do you think her ideology was, if it wasn't the same as this? And the what, people before her, and so on. This is fundamental to Zionism and to Zionist ideology. Otherwise, how could you possibly have over 2 million people dying of thirst, half an hour drive from Tel Aviv, where people are you know, on the beach and partying all day, not to mention how holding, holding music festivals just outside the fence. You know what I mean? You have to be brought up. You have to believe firmly in this genocidal, racist, supremacist ideology to be able to function and to maintain and, and to live in that kind of a state and, that kind of, and be part of that kind of society. Otherwise, you're an outcast. And there are, we do know that there are a few people who stand up and they are outcasts. They're completely outcasts. Anybody who stands with Palestinians, particularly in times like this, anybody who stands up against the, these, these genocidal tendencies and policies, and you look at the laws, you look at, you know, military operations going back to, you know, all the way to the beginning of the founding of the state of Israel. It's been massacre after massacre after massacre, savagery after savagery. And what's, I think, you know, some kind of a perhaps poetic justice that this massive military force that, especially in America, people love to admire, this huge intelligence apparatus, which again, people in America love to admire, the first, not the first, but you know, one of the only times that it was actually challenged, and it was challenged by a group of guerrilla fighters, not by a regular army, by any stretch of the imagination, it completely collapsed. I mean, the entire system collapsed. The entire intelligence apparatus is got, collapsed, did not function. The military was nowhere to be found. You know, scores and scores, nobody really knows how many, but certainly more, at least 1,500, if not more, fighters from Gaza glided in, marched in, came by small ships in and took over entire settlements. Entire kibbutzim have been flattened, have been gone by a small group of dedicated fighters. As this massive army pretends to be one of the greatest armies in the world, at least in their own view. You know, they were tested a couple of times before this, but never quite like this. Israelis have never seen fighting in the streets. You know, with fighters coming in, Palestinian fighters coming in like this and this, this quantity. And, and it's still going on. The fighting isn't over. They're still fighting in some of the settlements, some of the kibbutzim in the south. So, you know, this is what this is about. These punks are just saying, repeating what they've heard and what they've learned their entire lives. If you buy into Zionist ideology, you're going to end up like those punks or like the government ministers that are sitting with Netanyahu in the government right now. And like I said, have been sitting in Israeli governments going back decades. Mika, we've had you on this show before, but there are many people who will be watching for the first time because the events of the last week are so dramatic, so compelling, 
and the, the fact that the United States has decided to mobilize completely in support of what amounts to basically a genocidal campaign against the people of Gaza, a form of collective punishment, barred by international law, barred by the Geneva Convention, identified it at the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis as, as a crime against humanity when you deliberately target civilians. So people are sort of learning about many of these issues now for the first time. So I want to be able to go over, especially for new viewers or new listeners, like how you came to where you are. You are the son of an Israeli general. You were born in Jerusalem. You were part of the that Israeli system. You were undoubtedly, probably as a child, someone who believed in Zionism. How is it and why is it that you came to this sort of different position? And also, let's just talk about the media hold and the importance of the media in terms of presenting the dominant narrative of Israel as a land where before the Jewish European Jews arrived after World War II, it was a it was a wasteland, and the settlers turned the the land, the wasteland, into a, a land of milk and honey that they brought civilization. I mean, similar narratives to what happened when the Europeans colonized the North America and basically genocided the indigenous populations. But a, a lot of the same narrative. But let's help the audience first. Talk about you and how you got to where you are. Sure. So like you said, I was born in a, in a very, very, very Zionist family. My father, like you said, served as a, was a general in the Israeli army. He was a young officer when Israel was established and you know, had a military career. And my grandfather was a signer of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. So I come from a Zionist family through and through. You know, Many family members of mine had important positions prior to the establishing the state and then and then once the state of Israel was established and had you know had a you know very very uh, strong impact and influence on on what the state became and what the army became and my transformation obviously was gradual and i always say you know major transformations especially in terms of our of of how we view the world usually come up as a result of a terrible tragedy sadly and so although again i was pretty far along. But then uh, in 1997, my sister's little girl was killed by Palestinians in an attack in Jerusalem. And that's precisely the, the type of uh, the type of experience that shakes you to the core and, and forces you to, you know, re-examine what you believe in, re-examine the truths you have been taught, and re-examine the reality in which you exist. And that's precisely what I did. And I ended up I ended up reaching out to Palestinians in Palestine and to Palestinians here in the United States. And thankfully, I was surrounded by and welcomed by Palestinians, again, both in the United States and in Palestine, although they had no reason to accept me and, and be so as warm as welcoming as they were. And gradually, they took me through this very difficult step of, you know, realizing, first of all, that there are two opposite narratives, completely opposite narratives. They don't differ in, in detail or nuance. They differ fundamentally. And then, you know, take me by the hand like a baby learning to walk to slowly and gradually realize that the truth that I believed was the truth or the, the truth that I was taught and that I believed in was really a lie. And that the truth actually is on the other side of the story. The other, the Palestinian story is the truth. And it's a very difficult thing to do, especially when you come from a kind of a, you know, uber patriotic Zionist family like myself. 
And like you said, when I was young, of course I was a Zionist. I, you know, I, I was looking forward to serving in the army. I was looking forward to, you know, presenting Israel and doing everything I can. I believed in it wholeheartedly. But then eventually the meeting with Palestinians, the discussions with Palestinians and stepping on the ground into Palestine, realizing as, you know, as the title of subtitle of my book is, you know, journey of an Israeli in Palestine. I realized that I was an Israeli, but I was actually, I existed in Palestine. And of course, that book, The Journey, forced me, and it actually helps a lot of other people too when they read the book, to go through the process of understanding what's an Israeli, what is Israel, what is Palestine, and how do these things exist simultaneously, even though you've got these two fundamentally different narratives. So that's, that was my story. And eventually, I, as, as you know, I, I am decidedly anti-Zionist. I, support the, I don't support the Palestinian cause. I believe I am part of the Palestinian cause. You know, I, I'm not in solidarity with Palestinian struggle. I participate in the, that's at least how I view myself. I participate in the Palestinian struggle. And so I believe it's, you know, it's my struggle as well. And so this is the trajectory. Now, Israel has been at it in terms of the media, you know, for over a hundred years. The Zionist movement invested heavily in the very, very early years, not only in connections with the media, but with, you know, culturally, politically, in every other way that they could to influence American and Western thinking in general. They didn't only do this in the U.S. And they, like I said, after a hundred or so years, you get very good at this. And, and now you don't really need to convince an American politician to support Israel. It goes without saying, because they learned it in school and they learned it in church and they learned it in synagogue and they learned it in whatever other activities they were part of as they were growing up. And another thing that the Zionists learned very, very early on, particularly in America, is that all politics here is local. So in every city you go to, every mayor gets a trip to Israel funded by whatever, some, some Zionist organization, every police chief, every member of every city council, even the smallest cities in America, and on and on and on. So they've, they invest heavily in this, and they have been for a very long time. So it goes without saying that you support Israel because that's what they've been taught. That's what they know. That's what they're comfortable with. You know, it was interesting when Ahit Tamimi, if you remember a few years ago, a Palestinian girl with the big blonde hair was, was arrested. And, and really, there was a lot of press. She really got a lot of press. Both she and her mother kept saying, well, the only reason they care about her is because she looks like them, because she has, you know, she has pale skin and big blonde hair. So they, they, it's easy for Americans to associate with Israel because they see themselves in them. You know, they see similar things. They see Europeans who are, have taken over and, like you said, made the desert bloom and brought civilization, even though none of that is true. In fact, it's very easy to refute factually that Palestine was a thriving country and everything was stolen. Everything from money in the banks to produce in the fields to the entire cities that were built, entire institutions that were in place, ports and on and on and on that they stole. But the narrative is, is very effective. And the way that they present the narrative and the way that they invest in making sure that that is the prevailing narrative in the West is very effective. And like I said, after 100 or so years, you get very, very good at this. Now go prove that they're wrong. Now go prove that what they're saying is a lie. You know, it's a much harder task to prove that somebody, what somebody's saying is not true, you know. And so that's why they're ahead of the game in this, in all of this. Yeah, very, very important Miko, you know, in 1988, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution ending the characterization of the African National Congress as a terrorist organization. 
Up until then, the U.S. deemed the ANC, Nelson Mandela's group, a terrorist organization. And it was only really mass struggle, especially in the 1980s internationally, where the anti-apartheid struggle of the black majority population in South Africa became so powerful that the politicians in the United States basically had to try to sort of modify or mitigate the position. The US CIA helped arrest Nelson Mandela. They called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. Everything that people are hearing about the Palestinians was said about the African National Congress until the US government position actually changed. And I want to make that point because Israel is an apartheid society. People who sort of recognize South Africa, the racist apartheid government in South Africa, is something evil as apartheid, as something that is inherently foundationally discriminatory based on race or ethnicity or nationality. But in the case of Zionism, Zionism is not presented that way. Zionism is presented as a way for the Jewish people who suffered catastrophic losses because of the genocide by the Nazis and others in Europe during World War II, that it's a safe haven. It's a place for Jews to, to be free from a possible future pogroms. And now that the Palestinians whose land were stolen during this entire period are fighting back, they're being characterized as carrying out similar anti-Semitic pogroms as the Nazis. So you have this like dominant narrative and there's also the element, the profound element of racism. And I want to just sort of emphasize that and remind our audience about this because the world in many ways, Miko, from my point of view, has been divided for some time between oppressed nations and oppressor nations, a small handful of colonial powers kind of dominating most of the world. And in each and every instance, when the colonization policy was carried out, where a foreign power came in, dictates and imposes its will on the indigenous population, it's always presented by the colonizers as something good. It's something to civilize and uncivilized people, something to sort of turn people who are being characterized in the colonizing country as the American indigenous population was, as savages, they're gonna do something good for them. And so then when the indigenous people fight back, when they carry out sort of resistance because they no longer wanna live under colonial rule or apartheid rule, then they have returned to this kind of savagery against the civilizational people or the people who are bringing civilization. And for the people who are part of the dominant oppressor nation, as you're saying, it's so powerful. Like American white people should just remember in, in the United States when the U.S. Congress was moving based on the civil rights movement to end legal apartheid in the United States, white mobs would chase down young black school kids who were trying to go to all white schools as if that was okay, as if that was normal. And now when we look back at those howling mobs, we think, oh my God, look at how you know, disgusting America was, that you could be chasing down black school kids because they wanted to go or their parents were trying to get them into a dominant white school. This narrative of racism is in fact many, I mean, for many nations so compelling that until the actual struggle of the oppressed vanquishes it, it is the dominant narrative. Anyway, 
I know you know this, but I want to talk about the racism here in the United States, the racism in South Africa, the racism in Israel in terms of having a grip on people's mind. I think it's a great point, particularly with all the, you know, there's this rumor mill that Israelis are, or somebody's putting out there, but a lot of people are, are buying into that there were, you know, um, beheadings and babies were murdered. And, and now there's a new rumor that they beheaded and tortured pets and, you know, and, and women were paraded naked and raped and so on. And all of these things are being refuted very easily. And I think that's part of this effort to describe what we saw the attack by Palestinians from Gaza, but to kind of describe Arabs in general as kind of a, a crazed, you know, savage mob that when they see a white woman, they're so incensed that they absolutely, they're just, in, they have to rape her, you know, they have to, you know, strip her naked and rape her and, and, and parade her and so on. It's, it's, you know what I mean? As though this was, you know, Roman legions or something. And it's part of this Islamophobic, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian propaganda that's taking place here and in Israel very, very heavily, both in both countries. And then there's been a video that's been going around of a woman who describes how, in one of the kibbutzim in the south, describes how the fighters came in, they talked to her a little bit, she said, look, I've got children here, she said, said, don't worry, we're Muslims, we're not going to hurt you. And then, you know, let her into the secure room, locked her up, and then and left, you know, the kibbutzim where all the fighting was going on. And but this is exactly it. They have to continue. They have to keep pushing these racist stereotypes against Arabs, against Muslims, against Palestinians to show them as being, you know, uncivilized mobs. And, you know, there's a great book that just came out by Avi Shlaim, historian Avi Shlaim, about his own life as being an Arab Jew. He was born and raised in Baghdad and his family was forced to leave Baghdad in 1950 as a result of Zionism and the Zionists putting bombs in Jewish institutions in Baghdad. And he talks about that. And he says, you know, when, he, when they came as a child in school, that's how he was treated. They were treated like, and the official line by Israel's prime minister and, and minister of education and so on was that, you know, we had to bring these poor Jews from these savage countries. And so they didn't want to invest too much in their education. They didn't want to, you know, invest in any way, shape or form in having them advance and move up the social and economic ladder even though some of these people were incredibly wealthy and incredibly successful and highly educated. It was a very highly educated community because of the racism. They're Arabs. So how could they possibly not, how could they possibly be civilized when they're brown-skinned and they're Arabs and they lived among Muslims? And this is still a prevailing kind of idea thinking. I don't know if it's an ideology, but it's prevailing thinking, certainly among Israelis and here in the United States. The racism, I was talking to a friend earlier, the racism is so deep-rooted it's so deep rooted. And I, you know, I talk to people, to Israelis, you know, quite often, you just scratch the surface, not very deep. And it, it shows its ugly face. The racism is so, so deep over there, but that's exactly part of it. I mean, how could you possibly live like this? How do you function as a society, as a state, as a, as an individual in that reality and not fight it? If you are not deeply, deeply racist, it would be impossible. Yeah. I want to talk about why this attack happened when it happened, the military impact on it. Obviously, the Israeli government, their dominant narrative is this is our September 11th. And like the United States declared war on Muslim countries everywhere, invaded Afghanistan, invaded Iraq, bombed Libya, sent troops to Syria, bombed Syria. 
all of it done under the banner of the war against terror, that this will be used by the Israeli government, as we can clearly see, to try to do what the Israeli government has wanted to do for a long time through imprisoning the people in Gaza, terrorizing people, creating life in the West Bank where a big part of the Palestinian population still lives in a way that makes life very, very, very hard, where Palestinians are treated as not just second-class citizens, but even worse. They want to drive the Palestinians out. They want that land. This is about land. This has always been about land. It's been about expansionism and taking somebody else's land and doing it over a long-term period. But the Palestinian resistance has created many, many obstacles to that final solution, so to speak, for the Israeli government, which is to get rid of all of the Palestinians. So they, they want to do that. That's what the Israeli government hopes to be able to do at this moment. Whether they can do it, that remains to be seen. But I want to talk about the military side of this. In the recent couple of years, and especially in the recent period, Miko, there's been a rising tide of Palestinian resistance in the West Bank and elsewhere in historic Palestine. And I've seen reports, and you will know, but I, not being an expert, not following as carefully as you do, I don't actually know this, so I'd like you to respond to it. There were reports that the Israeli military had to remove some of its troops from the area around the fence where Gaza, where the people of Gaza are basically in prison to other parts of the West Bank because of the growing tide of resistance. And this made the Israeli military more vulnerable along the fence where the incursion took place. Long term, though, can the Israeli government completely snuff out the Palestinian people as it desires? And doesn't this incident, no matter what the level of Israeli retaliation, no matter how brutal or genocidal it might be, it seems to me that it's it's revealed us a vulnerability that exists for the Israeli military and the dream of constantly expanding Israel and constantly driving the Palestinian people out. There are certain vulnerabilities that the Israeli government certainly does have and its population does have in the face of this kind of seemingly, at least in the outset, very successful military operation that took seemed to take the Israeli military by surprise. Well, I'll start with the end. There's no way in the world that Israel can eliminate the Palestinians or the Palestinian resistance. The Palestinian resistance is, is vast and diverse. And as you well know, the vast majority of Palestinian resistance has, has got nothing to do with picking up arms. It has to do with other ways, civil disobedience and so on, which we've seen over, you know, since Israel was established. And Israel has been paranoid about all forms of Palestinian resistance, killing writers, killing poets, killing artists, killing, you know, clergy, cleric, killing intellectuals, and on and on and on. So it doesn't matter if you pick up a gun or you pick up a pen. If Israel doesn't like it, you will be targeted. And that's really the lesson over the last 75 years. In terms of the Israeli forces, yes, the Israeli forces were not there. The Israeli forces were up in the northern West Bank because that's been the lion's share of the armed resistance has been coming out of the Northern West Bank, Nablus and, and Janine area. And what's really, people need to pause for a minute and think about, you know, the Palestinian resistance, again, these are guerrilla fighters. This is not a regular army. There's never been a Palestinian army. So basically you have a bunch of guys with jeans and a t-shirt and a semi-automatic with a limited number of bullets. That's it. And in order to control them, Israel has to bring tens of thousands of troops 
an entire logistic operation, the military medical uh, corps, you know, there's evacuation from the air. I mean, an entire arena, you know, you'd think this was, you know, raw metal coming in to attack again, you know, and so on. Unbelievable. For a bunch of guys with, that have, you know, if they, when they shoot a bullet, then they're out of bullets. They don't have the massive logistic support, you know, that Israel does. They don't have the supplies coming in like Israel does. They can't make their own arms like Israel does. So it took Israel tens of thousands of soldiers up to the West Bank. And what they did was, the other part of this is not only that they neglected their own citizens in the South, not only did the intelligence apparatus fail completely, but there's hubris as well. And the hubris is part of, has been part of Israeli thinking, you know, going back a very long time. The Arabs wouldn't dare. That's what led to the surprise in, in, 50 years ago in the 1973 October War of 1973. Those hubris, Israel had intelligence that they were coming. Israel had been told that the Egyptians were planning something. And then when thousands of Egyptian troops built bridges across the Suez Canal, the Israeli, a handful of Israeli troops were sleeping in bunkers in the desert and were, you know, caught prisoner or slaughtered. You know, this hubris is what allowed Israel to leave the border with Gaza completely empty. So it took days. First of all, it allowed Palestinians, like I said earlier, Palestinian fighters to glide in with gliders. Think about this for a minute. And then come in overland, take over an entire military base. So the entire military base that is charged with protecting that area, protecting Israeli citizens, so to speak, from, you know, from Palestinians, is called the Gaza Brigade. The headquarters base of the Gaza Brigade was empty, except for a few soldiers. I mean, the entire force was not there. So these fighters from Gaza, again, are not a regular army. Granted, they're very well trained and very disciplined, and they must have been trained for a very long time. They marched in, they took over the base with all the goods and all the equipment and all the supplies that are there, I'm sure, took the general hostage. They took a general hostage. He's a POW now in Gaza. I mean, there's never been, there hasn't been an official, an official confirmation of this, but it seems very, very clear because that's where the general's office is and that's where he lives. So they took over this entire very crucial, very important base. It's not some small you know, outpost. This is a major military base that is charged with protecting Israeli citizens who live in the south, along the border with Gaza particularly. They took over that. Then they took over settlement, over settlement, over settlement, and just, you know, took them over. There was nobody. It took days before they could bring down some of the forces from the north, before they can round up reservists. And some reservists just you know, were home, so they picked up their uniform, a gun, and, and went down to the south to try to fight. But, you know, rounding up, calling up reservists takes days. They have to come in, and then they have to be equipped, and then you need the logistics, and always something goes wrong. And when you know where the, you know, the attack is coming from, and you know where the enemy, so to speak, is, you send them to the front. Well, nobody knows where the front is. You know, the border with Gaza is very long. There is no front. They're everywhere, and they're in the cities, in major cities, too, in the south, in Etivot in and Sderot and so on. These are cities and in the smaller settlements in the smaller kibbutzim. So militarily, Israel was slapped in the face and, you know, was proven to be completely, completely ineffective. And the one time that it was, again, seriously challenged, everything was proven to be ineffective. And this whole myth of the Israeli military is shown to be a myth. And it doesn't really surprise me because I, I was able, I've been seeing this, you know, signs of this all along. 
And so the capacity of this small group of fighters, oh, and the airport's closed. It's not closed, but it's chaos because foreign airlines don't want to land there because the Qassam rockets are falling too close to the airport or within a certain radius. And the majority of Israeli Air Force airline pilots are also Air Force pilots. So they've been drafted. So there's no flights. So there's chaos. So they managed to, they really managed to create this chaos in the entire state of Israel using a very relatively small number of well-trained fighters who, again, are not part of a military force, but part of a guerrilla group. You know, you got to take a moment here and pause and think about this, just how fragile, how brittle the systems are, how brittle the state of Israel is. And over the last year, we've seen how fractured and fragmented Israeli society is in the protests that we've seen, you know, hundreds of thousands coming out and protesting against the Netanyahu government. It's really a society that's held together by scotch tape. And it was falling apart. And now we see that the entire military apparatus, the entire intelligence apparatus, was also being held by scotch tape. As soon as it was poked, it completely fell apart. It was actually not only fell apart, it was nowhere to be seen. It was nowhere to be found. Battles are still going on now as we speak in some of the kibbutzim, some of the settlements in the south, as the Palestinian fighters are going in and out of Gaza freely because the opening in the fences have not been closed. So this is exactly, it shows two things. First of all, how effective, how an effective, well-trained military force, disciplined military force, you know, how much, what a strong effect it could have. And how the entire myth of the state of Israel, of Israeli society, of Israeli democracy and Israeli military has been proven to be just that. It's a myth. It's held by scotch tape. It's brittle. And it's, it could be on the verge of collapse, really. And by the way, there's now shooting from Lebanon as well. They're being attacked from Lebanon as well. So now they've got the need to divide their forces into two fronts. You know, whenever there's a war and the horrors of war, the horrors of people dying, the images of civilians dying especially, they are mortifying for everyone. And what we see happening with the U.S. media and with the U.S. government and with the U.S. politicians, liberal or conservative, certainly with the Israeli media and the Israeli government, is they're focusing on the Israelis who have been killed. And those are, you know, many horrific images. And, you know, just sort of normally and naturally human beings look at something like that and they're like, they're shocked, they're horrified. But again, the media is very, very selective in terms of its presentation of the victims of war. And then the war is kind of reduced in this narrative to between a war of good and evil. And if you see dead Israelis or dead, especially civilians, especially Israeli children, anything like that, you think like they're dead because an evil force came and killed them. And then if you don't see the Palestinians who are being killed, who have been routinely killed, constantly killed, constantly humiliated, the people in Gaza stuck there, can't leave. There's not potable drinking water. So many houses have been destroyed in the past. So this kind of presentation of war, it's understandable why like a population that's just sort of docile and getting its news and information and doesn't have background will take the side of those who are oppressing the people who are also dying on the other side, but their story is not told. That's one of the reasons why having this counter narrative or alternative media is so incredibly important. But the other thing that you touched on, Miko, that I think is so important, especially for people in the United States who are getting their information from the mainstream media to know, 
is that the Israeli government has been targeting not only those who take up arms against Israel, like these fighters, these guerrilla fighters, they take it, the struggle is against people who are involved in nonviolent protest. There was the, the great march of return in the same area, like along that fence on Gaza, where you know every Friday Palestinians were coming together in 2018 for nonviolent protests and being destroyed, being literally shot to death, shot down, wounded by Israeli snipers. No big deal here. It's like got almost no news. And then you have Americans who are involved in civil, it's not civil disobedience, it's nonviolent protests like the Boycott Divest Sanctions Movement, BDS. U.S. governments under the influence of the Israeli government are passing laws to make it illegal for Americans to boycott Israel if they want to do something of a nonviolent character, of a protest character, of a boycott character, using the tactics, say, of Dr. Martin Luther King to use the boycott to affect change, social change, or to eliminate racism. The Israeli government has targeted every form of resistance. Again, the, if you could, for the audience, the 2018 March on Return, I mean, the sheer brutality of that, and again, this was peaceful protest. So if the Palestinians take up arms, they're demons. If they don't take up arms, if they're pacifists, if they go to the wall and have nonviolent protests, they're shot down and the Western media doesn't cover it. Yes, I mean, the October 7th, the day that started, Isa Amro, my friend, activist, uh, you know, world-renowned activist from Hebron, was arrested, tortured for 12 hours, and unreleased. Nobody knew where he was. The Red Cross had no information. His lawyers had no information. Nobody knew where he was. He was taken by the soldiers or settlers, because the soldiers and the settlers are now completely interchangeable, almost. And he was beaten and tortured for 12 hours and then released. And it's typical of Israel to do that. God forbid he might foment some, you know, incitement. But uh, yeah, that's the picture. That's what's been going on ever since this began. First of all, showing that only one side is evil, only one side is killing the other. And, you know, I have to say, I, I don't like to get into the gory in details of what happens when people die and the pictures of the dead and the burnt and so on. But what do people think happen? What do they think happens when a one-ton bomb or a half-a-ton bomb is dropped on an entire apartment building. You know, and it, it affects an entire block. I mean, the entire block just disappears. City block disappears. What do you think happens to the children there? They don't think their heads are crushed and you know and dismembered. You don't think children die from the fumes and have you know get stuck in the rubble and die slowly. I mean, don't they think these horrifying things take place? And they take place by the thousands when Israel is bombing Gaza by the thousands. You know, never mind all these stories about Palestinians doing this have, have been proven to be untrue. But this is happening right now as we speak, as these massive bombs are falling on apartment buildings. What do you think happens to the children in those buildings? What do you think happens to their little bodies? Do people need an actual description of a step-by-step -step how these young bodies get dismembered and die? and the ways in which they die. I mean, we gloss over it completely. We see a building collapse. We hear that there were, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, however many people were killed, how many ever dozens were wounded, and we move on. You know, suddenly everybody you're here in the U.S. and, of course, Israelis have to describe every single, they found a baby that's head was chopped off and a dog. First of all, like I said, it's not true. You want to know how many heads get chopped off in a, with the pictures we're seeing right now, what happens to the heads of these children? 
you know, if we want to get into that conversation, it is really not going to be, you know, come out very well for the people who support Israel. If anybody cares about children and their bodies and their well-being, look at these pictures. What do you think is under this rubble? What do people think is under the rubble when these buildings fall? A terrorist? No. This is all civilian. It's always civilians. Palestinians, first of all, are all civilians. They've never had a military. They've never had an army. You know, so suddenly they're shocked. I remember this happened in the past. This happened before. Uh, at some point, people are asking me, what do you say to the, you know, I forget what the story was, but there's some story, similar story to this. I said, what are you talking about? Look what's being done in Gaza. What do you think happens to the people, these, the children that are being bombed? Gaza has 55% of the people in Gaza are under the age of 18. It's an entire society of children. And when they walk to school in the morning and the bombs come down, what do you think happens to them? What do you think happens to their heads? This is such hypocrisy. It is enraging. This hypocrisy, these attempts to show the other side as evil while completely glossing off the savagery by Israel and with the support, like you said, Israel, like you said earlier, support of the United States. These war planes are American planes. And it's not, you know, this, this, this is horrifying. Nobody thinks that all of the smoke comes out after all these bodies have been decimated and burned. You know, and the people who are dead are sometimes luckier than the ones who survive because there are no medical facilities. Hospitals have been bombed. And even if they weren't bombed, Israel doesn't allow the supplies to come in. And there's no electricity. A hospital without electricity, they have to use a generator, which means they need oil, which means the gasoline is running out, diesel is running out as well. You know, this is a cruelty and a brutality that is unbelievable. And Joe Biden talks about the other side, the Palestinians as being evil. And people are going to vote for him on top of this. And Amer other American politicians, uh, I forget who it was, a senator was posting these pictures and these stories about children being beheaded. You don't know how many children are being beheaded as we speak right now, but there's nothing left of them. So we can't see it because there's nothing left at the end of these, at the end of this horrific bombing. There's nothing left of the children that you can't even see if they were beheaded or not. Anyway, so this is the level of hypocrisy. It's a level of racism. And like you said, the media is gone. There is no media talking about this except, you know, shows like this and, you know, like you said, the alternative media. And thankfully it's there. Sadly, it's not reaching the, you know, enough people. It never does. But this is the reality. And this is, I think, the story that has to be pushed forward. People say, how do we support the Palestinian? Tell the story. Tell the story. Stand firm by the Palestinians. This attack was, <laughs> you know what I mean? Besides being a brilliant military operation that was planned under some very difficult conditions, there's no doubt, you know, what could be more justified? What could be more justified? If they were sitting in their beds, they'd be killed. And when they fight, they'd be killed. People would rather die fighting. It's enraging. It's just really enraging. And Mika, that story that you're alluding to, just for those who might not know, the statement came out right away right when the military operation began, that the Palestinians had beheaded 40 Israeli babies. And now we see coming out in the media that the person who was the source of that is saying, oh no, I didn't actually say that. That's not accurate. That's now like that now we have the retraction, but actually nobody knows that. Nobody hears about the correction five days later. It was, you know, headlines day after day, similarly to what the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter did at the beginning of the first Gulf War, where she said, and the U.S. media treated it as good coin, that the Iraqis 
were taking Kuwaiti babies and ripping them out of the incubators and letting these kids who were born prematurely, letting them die because the Iraqis wanted to take those incubators back to Iraqi hospitals. Then it turned out that was the whole thing was a scam. But Amnesty, I think it was Amnesty International, many of the human rights groups certainly treated it as good coin. It became really a dominant narrative so that the image that Iraq must be attacked, there must be a war against Iraq, you can bomb every part of Iraq, which happened, because Iraq is evil. It's sheer evil. It's sheer evil. Because what would be better evidence of its sheer evilness than taking babies out of their incubators? And then later it turned out, again, to be completely untrue. But the bombing, Miko, as you're pointing out, of these giant, you know, high tower apartment buildings, that's not made up. That's real. That's real. And again, it lacks the drama of the, the story because the story is just like, Oh, Israel is now retaliating for. Israel is now defending itself against. As opposed to the idea that Israel has decided, its top defense minister has said, we're going to treat them like animals because they are animals. We're going to deprive them of food, water, electricity as they begin the bombing. You know, in Serbia, Miko, when the German occupiers took over Serbia, if Serbia resistance killed a German soldier in World War II, the Nazi-led German military at that time had a policy of killing 100 Serbs for every German who died. So if a German officer was killed, they would literally go in the streets of Belgrade and pick 100 civilians and lynch them, hang them from the lamppost. Literally, that's what the Germans did to say, we're not going to tolerate any German casualties. And of course, back in Germany, I'm sure the media machine presented it in a way that seemed justifiable to the, to the Germans. I mean, you've said it all, Miko, very eloquently. I want to, as we wrap up, I want to ask you, you and I both know that in the last 20 years, a lot has changed. 20 years ago in 2002, when the Answer Coalition called a demonstration in support of Palestine after the reinvasion of the West Bank, which happened at the end of March 2002, Many people on the left wouldn't support us, but 100,000 people came out. 100,000 people came out April 20th, 2002, and it kind of demonstrated that you could actually be for Palestine, be for the righteous cause of the Palestinian people, be against Israeli aggression. And since then, I think it's basically around that time, lots of different sort of manifestations of solidarity with the Palestinian people are, have been developed. And they're growing. It's not going to go back. It's not going to be the way it was, where support for Palestine was just an absolute taboo, as if you were supporting absolute evil incarnate. The righteous cause, the just cause of the Palestinian people is gaining more and more popularity. And there are ways for people to, to do things like BDS, like, you know, telling the story, as you said. You are telling the story. You are telling the story, I think, in the most one of the most important ways, because as someone who came from an Israeli family, the family of an Israeli general, and now standing with Palestine, not simply supporting Palestine, as you said, but being part of the liberation movement of Palestine, your story is so compelling. But I want to ask you, just in our last, this is my last question, if people want to know, what can they do? They want to do something about Palestine. They want to stop the carnage. What can they do? What should they do? Well, they need to stop being ambivalent about this and stop being, you know, queasy about supporting Palestinians. 
people need to understand. You know, I, I compare it to um, if you're walking down the street and you see a human being bleeding to death. Solidarity is saying, hey, hang in there, buddy. <laughs> what is needed now is to jump in and stop the bleeding and save the life of this human being. That's what Palestine needs us to do. It needs us to participate. We need to participate. We need to talk clearly. We need to make our view, our support, or our stance with the Palestinians loud and clear, unabashedly, and publicly, without being afraid. Now, I know people are afraid for all kinds of different reasons, between losing their jobs and being posted on the Canary Mission and all the different you know, fear tactics that are out there. People are genuinely afraid. The only way this is going to change is if we change it. I had this conversation earlier with somebody. The only way, the only way Palestine will be liberated is if we act. Palestinians are doing above and beyond, as we can see, and they pay an enormously heavy price. We elect the people that support Israel. We elect the people who dare to stand up and, and say that they are Zionists. You know, like you said, they used to call Nelson Mandela terrorists. Now those people are hiding, you know, in some corner, hoping nobody will notice that it was them out of shame, as they should. You know, we are the ones who have the ability to bring about the change. And it's not going to happen unless we do. It's not going to be people say, how long will it take? Well, it depends on us. Is it realistic to expect the Palestine to be liberated and a real free democratic Palestine to emerge and the right of return of the Palestinian refugees to materialize? Of course it's realistic if we make it realistic. So yes, you can pick the, the method that works for you. You see Israeli-made products in the store, talk to the manager or, or have a protest, organize something, organize a book club, talk to your neighbors. People are afraid to talk to their neighbors because, you know, they've had a neighbor for 30 years who is Jewish and they assume that because they're Jewish, they support Israel. You know, talk to them. What if they're white supremacists? I mean, Zionism is white supremacy. It's a form of white supremacy. It's the supremacist, like I said earlier, ideology. Why do they get a pass? Stop giving them a pass. A politician that says they're Zionists should hear from their constituents. How dare they? How dare they? You know, again, it reminds me of, you know, RFK Jr. People say, well, he's not so bad. He's good on other issues, but, you know, sadly on Israel. What do you mean sadly on Israel? Look, what, look at what the support for Israel does. Look what he's supporting when he supports Israel. This is a small thing. This is a small issue. You know, people write to me sometimes, not that it's a realistic request, but, you know, would I, would I consider meeting him and changing his mind, which is, of course, absurd. Why would I meet somebody who supports this? Anybody who does not reject racism completely, including racism that is targeting Palestinians or Muslims or Arabs, or Arabs I, why would I want to meet, talk to, meet, see with somebody like that? Until politicians completely reject Zionism, completely reject the violence against Palestinians, completely reject Islamophobia and the Arab anti-Arab racism in this country, there's nothing to talk to them. They should be outed. They should be out of office. But the only people who can do it is us. We need to call them. We need to email them. We need to vote. We need to make sure that their staffers know that this is not acceptable. And then we need to make sure our friends, our communities stand with us and are courageous enough to make these statements. The right thing to do is to stand with Palestine. The wrong thing to do is to support Israel. This is actually a very simple equation. It's one of the problems on earth, you know, one of the few problems on earth where the answer is actually very, very simple. There is a right and a wrong here. Supporting Palestine is right. Supporting Palestinians is right. Supporting Israel is wrong. Absolutely. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we want to see people die. Of course, we don't want to see people die. Everybody has a mother and a father. Nobody wants to see people die. Nobody wants to see people killed. That's why we have to act in this way. Because acting in this way, the result of this, the result of supporting Palestine and Palestinian rights, the result of supporting or being part of the struggle to liberate Palestine means that Israelis and Palestinians will finally be able to live in peace and this bloodshed will end. That's the objective of all of this. And this is the method by which we reach that uh, objective. Yes, Mika, you have said many times when you've spoken, when you've written on this show, the choice in Palestine really is quite simple. It's like, do you believe in democracy? Do you oppose apartheid? Because Palestine can be a place where apartheid has come to an end, in which case a place where democracy actually could flourish. So it's not about simply one people or another people. Do you support apartheid? Do you oppose apartheid? Do you support democracy or oppose it? Those are the stark choices, very stark choices. Miko Peled, M-I-K-O-P-E-L-E-D.com. People should go to your website, get your books, host you when, when they can. I know you have gone on numerous speaking tours. Miko Pellet, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.